Hello, and welcome to Title Nerds, presented by the law firm of Riker Danzig. Each episode features one or more of Riker Danzig's thought leaders in the title insurance law space, discussing current legal trends and issues of significance. Before we begin, we wish to note that nothing shared on today's podcast should be considered legal advice in any particular matter. Now, I'm pleased to introduce Michael O'Donnell, Riker Danzig's co-managing partner and partner Bethany Abelay to kick off our podcast. Good morning, Title Nerds. Welcome to our ninth episode of our Title Nerds podcast. And this is actually our last episode of season one. So thank you all for those who've been with us since the beginning, and hopefully you will all stay tuned for season two. We have some great special guests this morning with us, and my co-moderator and partner, Mike O'Donnell, will introduce them. Take it away, Mike. All right. We have Steve Sr. and Alexa Richmond Lalonde, who are Bethany and I's partners, and they are in our firm's environmental department, which I'm not biased at all, but I will say, and I think most people agree, is the finest environmental department in the state of New Jersey. What you need to know about environmental law, they know, and they're really experts with regard to, obviously, environmental law and real estate, and that's why we're so excited to have them with us on this podcast. And so welcome, Steve and Alexa. Why don't you just give us a little bit of your background, Steve and Alexa, and then I'm going to turn the interview section over to Bethany, where she's going to have, I think, some conversations with you about deed notices. Wonderful. Thanks very much, Mike. I, you know, I'm co-chair of the environmental law practice at Riker Danzig, and my partner Alexa and I have been working together in this area for 25 years. I suppose I'm biased too. Uh, Riker has one of the largest and most diverse environmental practices in New Jersey, but it really does include a focus on real estate, redevelopment, and related transactions. Personally, I've also helped launch the Licensed Site Remediation Professionals Program. Folks who do due diligence in real estate and deal with those transactions may have heard of LSRPs, and we helped launch that program. More recently, I'm getting involved in a variety of renewable energy matters, including offshore wind, solar, food waste, energy projects, lots of new things on the environmental horizon. Alexa? Hi, thank you for having us today. Very happy to be on the Title Nerds podcast. On the Um, season finale of Title Nerds. Right. We'll make sure it's a blockbuster. So... In addition to the practice areas that Steve just discussed, you know, the the practice does include also environmental litigation. So we routinely are in court representing our clients in matters related to cost recovery, seeking costs from responsible parties, and also in connection, you know, with transactions that, you know, don't necessarily go the way that parties expect after the responsibility is allocated. And we also do, you know, more run-of-the-mill compliance, permitting, operational counseling also. Great. Thank you. And again, thank you guys for being here today. We really appreciate it. I think before we get into the deed notices that Mike is very excited about, I think we should first (laughs) ask you... Coming out of COVID, is there anything different that you guys are seeing or what are you seeing in your practice right now with regard to real estate transactions? You know, I think that we can 
can say pretty definitively that the commercial industrial property market in New Jersey is hot right now. There is a lot of demand, particularly for warehouse and logistic development. So we find that, you know, for our selling clients, you know, it it is a seller's market. And for our developer clients, they are actively trying to find, you know, properties that are suitable and they're at a premium right now. Well, I'll just add, Bethany, Mike, I know you work with our real estate partners as well. And they'll tell you it's the Wild West right now that, <laughs> you know, the transactional work, the warehouse and logistic work, as Alexa mentioned, you know, other, other types of, you know, real estate transactions and redevelopment in New Jersey really are the Wild West, so to speak. You know, that said, we are seeing, as I mentioned earlier, lots of other types of interesting projects. There is a real focus on renewable energy these days, and we're working on those kinds of things as well. So that's what we're doing as we're all emerging from COVID and getting back to our normal lives and seeing each other in the office again. All right. Great. Thanks. Sounds like you guys are pretty busy. (laughs) So deed notices. Tell our listeners, what is a deed notice and how is it generated? You know, a deed notice is a very specific thing in New Jersey. I know there recently was a case that addressed a deed notice, and we'll talk a little bit about that in a minute. And I certainly know that deed notices are of interest to you and to the title agents. In New Jersey, a deed notice is a form created by the DEP, which is intended to provide record notice of contamination that remains in the ground. And it also will give notice of what we call engineering controls and sometimes other institutional controls that are ways to manage the contamination. At a typical site in New Jersey, and let's say it's in an urban area on a waterfront, There may be something called historic fill. That's a term of art in New Jersey. It's contaminated fill material that was placed on the, you know, to raise the level of the ground or to create buildable area. And under the law, there's a presumption that that material will be remediated using engineering and institutional controls. A cap parking lot is an excellent cap over historic fill. And a deed notice will memorialize the fact that the contamination is there, provide record notice of the control, and require successors in interest, both the owner and successors in interest, to comply with the requirements of the deed notice, including what might happen when that control is disturbed during redevelopment, repair, or other kinds of activity. I guess I maybe just add one thing to that, Steve, which was an excellent overview. It's the remediating party or the party that has responsibility to complete the site remediation case that would actually prepare and then record the deed notice. And, you know, that works well when that party owns the property that it is remediating. But, you know, as Steve alluded, we're going to talk about a case in a little bit when the party does not own the site, there really is no mechanism under the the law to compel a property owner to accept the deed notice. And that's when things get more interesting. Oh, wow. Interesting. And so with the form itself, the actual deed notice form, what are the components? Are they similar all the time? Is there a form? Is the form negotiable? 
Yeah, so the form, Bethany, actually is an appendix to the regulations. And in the regulations itself, it says that the deed notice must be, quote, worded exactly as the model that's in the appendix. The only real latitude you have is with respect to site-specific information, including the description of the controls that, you know, are part of the deed notice. So a description of the area and cap and its thickness and things like that. So it's not a document that can be negotiated, but for those issues. And, you know, we we do negotiate those sometimes. For example, I had a case recently where, again, it was a, a prior owner that was remediating a site. And so it came to our client, the current owner. And in the deed notice, you know, it included an asphalt parking lot, but then it also included a perimeter fence around the entire property, which really was not, you know, required under DEP remediation requirements. And so we had some negotiation about that because, you know, putting that in the deed notice as a control made it a regulated feature, which our client really didn't want to accept responsibility for. So we were able to remove that. And, you know, just to add, Uh, Typically, it is the province of the remediating party and their licensed site remediation professional who is overseeing the remediation and certifying it to say what should be in those parts of the deed notice that can be site-specific. And if if you've ever seen one of these, it it really like the first 10 pages or 12 pages are a form. And we tell, you know, our our legal colleagues, you can't touch those 10 or 12 pages of the form (laughs) other than to fill in your site-specific information, your name, et cetera. But then the rest of it includes all the descriptions. And these are sometimes negotiated as Alexa indicated. Can it ever be amended after it's recorded? And does it ever get discharged? (laughs) Hopefully, hopefully sometime it would get discharged. Well, you know, (laughs) many of them are intended not to be discharged because because these contaminants, many of them, for example, that are in historic fill, they don't go away. They might be metals, they might be lead or other types of metals that won't, you know, degrade in the environment. So essentially they're they're there for forever. But there are many circumstances where a deed notice might change if the property is going to be redeveloped and the cap might change, for example then that new cap has to be memorialized in a new deed notice. And there's a very prescriptive process for for how this is done. You have to obtain the approval of the DEP in New Jersey, both to terminate the old deed notice and to create a new deed notice. And so it can be a lengthy and challenging process in and of itself. As a title nerd, hearing something will likely not be discharged our spine tingles there. What do you mean it's not going to be ever discharged? In our world, we like hearing things are discharged. <laughs> I guess I would just add that because maybe this is what you would be looking for is there is a mechanism <laughs> that you can terminate a deed notice. Steve, though, said like, you know, you can only do that once there's no longer contamination above standards present. And DEP, of course, has a very prescriptive process and form for that also that the department has to sign, I believe, in order to actually remove the deed notice. 
Great point, Alexa. I'll just add too. you know, one way to eliminate the need for a deed notice is to dig out all the contamination and remove it. Once it's removed, there's no longer a need for a, a deed notice. But in, in many you know, areas in New Jersey, especially, that's just not cost effective or productive to do. All right. Here's my next question. I think both of you have referenced a recent case on deed notices, and you said we would talk about it in a few minutes. So tell our listeners, what case are you talking about? <laughs> okay, so I'm going to just give a very brief overview of the basic facts. The case is called Cazzoli Machine Company versus Crown Real Estate Holdings. And this is a case that was just decided in December of 2021. And the situation was that Cazzoli was a machine company that operated in New Jersey called an industrial establishment under the Industrial Site Recovery Act, which is the Transfer Act in New Jersey. So if an industrial establishment changes hands, ISRA is triggered and the seller is to go and do a review, environmental review, and if necessary, remediation of the property. So Cazzoli triggered ISRA when it sold the property to an entity, MJR, in 2003. Cazzoli was slow moving, let's say, and ultimately entered into a settlement agreement with DEP and, and MJR to complete the remediation. And the main issue that needed to be addressed was the fact that the property had historic fill, which Steve discussed a little bit earlier. And so as part of that settlement agreement, MJR agreed to accept a deed notice on the property to address the historic fill. Before though, Cazzoli could complete its site remediation, MJR defaulted on its loan and its bank took over. And then the bank actually sold the property to a third but related party. And when Cazzoli, you know, went to record the deed notice for the historic fill, the new owner did not want to accept the deed notice because it wanted to redevelop the property into residential condos, I believe. And as a condition of site plan approval, they had to produce an unrestricted use letter from the LSRP, which could not include a deed notice. So Cazzoli sued saying, you know, property owner, you have to accept this deed notice. And I don't know, Steve, if you want to pick up there, that, that's the basic premise for, for the case. And one of, of interest to us, because as we were talking about earlier, you know, there really is no mechanism to require a property owner to accept a deed notice. But as Steve also said here, you know, we're dealing with historic fill and in the statutes, the legislature has basically said that, you know, capping is a presumptive remedy for historic fill. So Bethany, you and Mike, as title nerds, I'm sure there are esoteric items related to title that really get you <laughs> excited. But, you know, this kind of case is very exciting for New Jersey environmental lawyers, especially ones like us who represent remediating parties who want to help their clients get deed notices and often have to negotiate with reluctant property owners about whether or not a deed notice should be imposed. And here the court said, property owner, you must take this deed notice and sign it. That's a pretty big deal kind of in our world. 
there are a lot of facts that are involved in this case that probably brought about the result. So it's a question about whether this really has broad applicability. Ultimately, the owners of the property who did not want to sign the deed notice were affiliated with the bank and had knowledge of the agreement to have a deed notice that was earlier. So that that knowledge was imputed to the to the new owner. The court also indicated that the new owner put aside the knowledge, you know, had inquiry notice. They knew enough to know they should really look into this a bit more, you know, before they purchased the property. And they obviously had a transparent financial interest in trying to have the property cleaned up to unrestricted use standards. So there were a lot of issues that arose in the case, a lot of facts that brought about the result, but the court really took a close look. It looked closely at the law. It recognized a presumption for engineering and institutional controls when you have historic fill, and that these are really intended to encourage you know, the cost-effective cleanup and redevelopment of contaminated sites in New Jersey. And that brought about the result in this case. But, you know, something very exciting to us environmental lawyers here in New Jersey. Lexi, you want to add anything? Yeah, I mean, the only thing I guess I would add, and it's not necessarily specific to the case, but more about our practice and that, you know, these are the issues that we consider every day, whether we're looking at old contracts that, you know, were entered into before the requirements for uh, deed notice were in place. And, and now also accompanying deed notice is something called a remedial action permit, which, you know, runs to the current property owner. So, you know, we are interpreting old contracts to see whether it would replace an obligation on the current owner. And then when we draft contracts now, this is definitely a term that we, we try to incorporate. But I agree with Steve, you know, completely. I mean, you know, I hate to say that I find the case exciting, but (laughs) it is a very interesting case and, you know, but very limited. And I'm not sure it will have great applicability. It's not something that we can, you know, we were representing a property owner who is remediating and wants to compel a current owner to accept a deed notice. I don't think we can wave this case in front of them and say, see, you're obligated. Bethany, if I can give a shout out to Alexa about this particular case. Alexa wrote a blog article on that. And I think other than Mary Kay Roberts, our governmental affairs partner, she's the only author we've allowed to appear in our banking and title insurance litigation. We've denied thousands of legal luminaries access to this. <laughs> but we we put, you know, we were actually writing a blog article about that very same case. And Alexa beat us to it and was far more articulate about it. So we asked her permission to put it into our blog because they also have a great environmental blog where it appeared as well. And um, not only was it published in our blog, it was picked up by one of our clients. Fidelity does an agency national blog. And I think it led that blog the following week. So, you know, Alexa's a certified title nerd, I guess. That's all I can say. (laughs) I'm honored. Mike, thanks for the plug for our blog and for Alexa. And she she certainly develops it. I'm going to go right back at you because I think it's safe to say that the title nerd podcast, the title blog that you also have, and the environmental blog at Riker Danzig are among some of our finest contributions. So, you know, nice work. And thanks for having us on this terrific podcast. 
I just think it's funny that you guys were saying, well, Alexa said she was embarrassed to admit that she was excited about the case. Steve wasn't embarrassed. Steve just said he was excited about the case. But I haven't yet heard you guys call yourselves environmental nerds. And, and you should know on this podcast, the term nerds is a very complimentary term. It's not derogatory. We, we like our title nerds and we, we speak with pride when we call ourselves title nerds. And for at least this morning, you guys are honorary title nerds. <laughs> Sounds great. So are there any other instruments besides deed notices that we have that parties might use to limit the use of a property for environmental reasons? There are. And, you know, we see increasingly in our practice, we've talked about a deed notice, which is a very specific thing. It's very prescriptive. It's sort of a requirement of our law. But there are other kinds of documents that might be recorded against title or, you know, whether they're required by law or not, private parties are using them. Uh, You know, right now I have multiple matters where You know, the question is arising, should we record environmental restrictions against the property as a private matter, either in a deed or in a separate document, whether it's restricting the use of the property or providing future access for a party who might have to come back if there ever were a reopener of a remediation case. There's lots of times when this happens. Maybe I'll give another example and then, you know, let Alexa identify some as well. I have a case right now, if you're familiar with the term BRAC or the BRAC, uh, the Base Realignment and Closure Act, which applies to federal facilities, military facilities. And, you know, in a number of circumstances, these are situations where the federal government will convey the property, perhaps to a municipality or to another, and they reserve in the deed various environmental covenants and restrictions. And I have a matter right now where a party wants to build a warehouse on a former military base. And we're looking very closely at this quick claim deed from the federal government, which has quite significant environmental restrictions, access rights to the federal government in the future if they have to come back, and what to do about contamination that might be identified post-closing after the transfer of this property. And I, I will note that this deed was identified in you know, the title search and you know, by the title company that we were working with at the time. And first, you know, one of our real estate partners looked at it, looked at the document and said, what the heck is this? Let me send this to Steve and Alexa for some review and advice. So we see a lot of different kinds of mechanisms these days. And you know, help our clients and our colleagues kind of negotiate their way through them. I agree. It's becoming more common as a way, you know, to either assign or limit liability. And also, you know, these types of agreements can restrict the use of the property. Mm -hmm. It's not uncommon. I've seen recently, you know, restrictions that don't allow use of the groundwater and or use of the property for any type of sensitive use you know, residential, daycare, even, you know, playgrounds or public parks. I think the one thing, though, to note is that these are private agreements. And so the ability to modify and or terminate them is a matter of, you know, agreement, you know, by the the parties, DEP, and then LSRP does not necessarily have to get involved with it. Oh, interesting. Are there any other documents that we might see in a title search 
There are one category of documents we see in a title search relate to wetlands and regulated areas that, you know, are on the property. There are essentially two categories of documents that you may see. The first is called a letter of interpretation, which relates to wetlands and their transition areas, which are the areas that are regulated under DEP requirements. And, you know, you would need a permit in order to disturb those areas in connection with construction. And so these letters of interpretation are documents that delineate or verify the extent of the wetlands. To get what's called a line verification letter of interpretation, you would have your consultant go out and map the wetlands and then DEP would come out and confirm that line. And then verification under the rules is recorded against the property. That document is good for five years and can potentially get extended for five years. Once that line is set, that's the line, you know, unless there's, you know, some action taken to get DEP to correct that line because the developer wants to be able to rely on it. So many times in these title searches, we see very old LOIs that are really no longer effective. And at that point, you know, the new party coming to the site who may want to develop it would have to get another LOI. The second category of documents within the wetlands and, and, you know, these regulated features realm are conservation easements or restrictions. And those are, are documents that are required when you, for example, build in some part of what's called the transition area uh, wetlands. And so you have to preserve the remainder of the transition area. Or if you actually disturb a wetland, many times a permit will require mitigation. And the area that is, you know, then preserved wetlands to mitigate the impacts that you have would be a subject of this conservation restriction. And these, Bethany, you'll probably perk up at this, are <laughs> intended to run with the land in perpetuity. And they cannot be modified, they say, except for de minimis reasons. And any type of modification has to be approved by DEP. So these are our categories. That's a category of documents that continues to run with the land. Maybe I'll just give one more quick example. New Jersey has a lot of waterfront areas and we have a waterfront development permitting program. If you want to build something, you know, within 500 feet of a, a tidal waterway, you may be subject to it or closer. These permits get recorded and in effect run with the land for their, their period, which is typically five years to start. And they will say, here's what you can develop in this area in waterfront areas, one of the requirements, and it can be memorialized in a conservation easement, is to provide public access to the waterway. And that can mean, in terms of redevelopment, having to provide a walkway along the water so that the public can walk along the water. The Hudson River, for example, is one area where there's quite a bit of waterfront walkway that has been a requirement of the development along the river to preserve that path in a conservation easement so that the public can have access to and enjoy the Hudson River waterfront area. 
one of the other liens is spill act liens. Can you guys just take us for a moment or two or as long as you like? <laughs> sure. A spill act lien occurs if DEP has spent public funds to remediate a site. And it, as a result, it would then have a claim against the owner of the property that it remediated the site of. And so that the lien constitutes a debt of the person, you know, who's considered in any way responsible for the, the contamination. That lien not only runs to the particular property that the department cleaned up, and that would be considered a super lien or a first priority lien that would take precedence over any prior, you know, recorded liens, but it also runs to any other property owned by the debtor. Uh, those liens, though, are not first priority liens against the other property. And the sale of the property wouldn't extinguish the lien unless someone else compensates the department for the cost that it had already expensed. So, you know, Steve, would you like to add anything? I was just going to add, I, I know Bethany knows about spill act liens because she and I worked together to try to discharge one at one point. And, you know, that can involve, you know, working with the state's lawyers and trying to understand and address the claim that's the basis of the lien and to, you know, negotiate its discharge so that it doesn't affect a, a transaction. And I will say we in our group greatly appreciate the fact that we can pick up the phone and call you guys and you're always willing to help us. If we have a question on environmental issues, if something comes up in one of our cases, if we're looking at a title search and say, what is this environmental thing? You guys have always been fantastic when we call to pick up the phone and walk us through it and help us out with that stuff. So thank you for that. And if I could ask you just a few questions that come, you know, we talked about our real estate, but Bethany and I also do a fair amount of commercial foreclosures and represent lenders in that. Also in the context of sometimes we're retained by title insurance companies, sometimes we're representing the banks directly. And there's always with lenders and owners issues about, do I disclose the environmental report? If I disclose their environmental report, is there any liability? What do I have to disclose? You know, if, if I'm a, a bank or even a property owner and I, and I have an environmental report in our files, can you guys give us some guidance or thoughts about, about that particular issue? Because it's, it's always been a tricky issue in our practice. And we've always been very, very reluctant to give a report out to a third party for fear of third party coming back to us and trying to impose some type of liability. You know, Mike, it's a great question that you just asked about, you know, when do you need to disclose these environmental reports or other information that you might have? The law itself is you know, pretty sparse in terms of when a disclosure is actually required. There are some statutes in New Jersey. There's a landfill act that requires disclosure of nearby landfills. There may be certain contexts, uh, residential context, where disclosure of a latent defect may be required, but there really are a few requirements under the law to disclose that kind of information. You know, that said, contracts, agreements of sale can set up representations that require disclosure, and typically, you know, we often prefer disclosure or recommend disclosure. Because it's the safest course, you, you won't find yourself then subject to a claim by, let's say, a purchaser that you knew something about the property, but 
but you didn't disclose it at the time of the transaction. Thank you. That's good to know. And I know most of the reports also have language in that, you know, the reports are not entitled to reliance by third parties, which gives you some comfort. Now, I know this, the New Jersey Spill Act has safe harbors for lenders. And I know this is over a decade old, this law. But, you know, when you do commercial foreclosures and you got a contaminated property, when you represent lenders, they sort of throw their hands up sometimes for fear. And I know this statute has been very helpful to lenders in New Jersey taking over property. And I know you guys are kind of the experts on it. So can you tell us a little bit of the statute and and what it does for a lender who has to foreclose on a property? It's its collateral. It's contaminated. And the only way it's going to receive any recovery on its loan is disposition of the property. I think in that situation, Mike, there is this safe harbor out there that you know, a lender can follow. The key there is that, you know, the lender looks like it's protecting its security interest rather than, you know, managing a contaminated piece of property or otherwise, you know, looking like it's somehow using the property for investment purposes rather than just trying to protect its security interest. So, you know, there are some very specific things in the statute that a lender should do and within certain time periods after foreclosure in order to make sure that it can avail itself of the safe harbor. And, you know, I think that's the situation where sometimes, you know, we've had to help some maybe of your clients and, you know, that maybe because of market conditions can't you know, dispose of the property quite as quickly. And so somebody tries to make a claim that they no longer satisfy the secured lender exemption. But it's important to, to know those and to act accordingly. Steve? Yeah, yeah. I just, I, I completely agree with you, Alexa. There's kind of an excellent and broad protection for secured creditors, both in state law and in federal law. But with that said, I, the details really matter. And how the lender acts through the foreclosure process and with respect to the property where, for example, there are underground storage tanks, those details of how the, the lender acts really matter. Great. Thank you, guys. Bethany, do you have any more questions for our environmental partners? Um, I guess the only question is if there is anything else you guys want to add. If there's anything else you guys want to add, now's your chance. <laughs> Well, I'll just say thanks so much for having us on your podcast. This is really fun this morning. We got to talk about deed notices, and I got really excited about that. <laughs> and it was a great way to start the day. So I'll just say thanks and you know, look forward to next time. I'll just say I didn't get very excited. I was somewhat intrigued. I'm leaving it. <laughs> I agree. Thank you. It was really fun, actually, to talk with you nerds. You didn't, you didn't have to sound so surprised, Alexa. You didn't have to throw the actually in there. <laughs> and I will add, I think you guys are undercover title nerds because during this podcast, I heard the term inquiry notice. I heard runs with the land. I heard first priority liens. So these are all terms of art in the title world. So you guys are definitely title nerds, whether you want to admit it or not. So thank you both for being here. We appreciate it. Thanks very much. Thank you again. And our next guest is one of our long-term members of our title team, Jorge Sanchez. 
And Jorge Sanchez is here to discuss the case of Woodmont Properties v. West Hampton. Jorge, I have a question for you. This case, do you know what line in this opinion tells you that Judge Fisher may be a grateful dead fan? <laughs> Unfortunately, no, because I think I'm a little, a little too young to be. You, you are, but I am not, Jorge. And Jorge, a, I don't know what he's referencing either. So There's a line in this opinion where Judge Fisher says, although it was a long, strange trip in the trial court, that is a paraphrase of a very famous line from the Grateful Dead song, biggest hit, Trucking which is, lately it's occurred to me what a long, strange trip it's been. What in the world ever became a sweet Jane? She lost her sparkle. You know, she isn't the same. Living on reds, vitamin C, and cocaine, all a friend can say is, ain't it a shame? If you're my age, you would know that song. It's pretty famous. I would have never pegged you for a Grateful Dead fan. I, 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 I just want to say, I know in my high school yearbook, people definitely used what a long, strange trip it's been as, you know, their quote or whatnot. So I have heard that quote. And I will also comment that I did not think that we would use the word cocaine on today's title podcast. But hey, you know, it's our season finale. Anything's possible. (laughs) You know, that paragraph in the opinion, I thought was actually very, very interesting. It's, you know, kind of outside the title nerd realm, but it's definitely sort of something to keep in mind as a litigator. So this case started out, Woodmont Properties basically contracted with Hove Brothers, and I'm probably pronouncing that incorrectly, but contracted to purchase an undeveloped piece of property in Burlington County for about $5.8 million. About a month before the contract, Hove Bros, the owner of the property, got a letter of intent from TD Bank to get a mortgage loan for $3.5 million. After the contract, that loan actually closed and TD Bank recorded its mortgage on the property. One of the terms of the contract, however, between Woodmont and Hovebros said that Hovebros couldn't encumber the property more than 80% of the value of the contract. Unfortunately, Hovebros defaulted on its mortgage and TD Bank files its foreclosure action. That contract between Hovebros and Woodmont wasn't recorded and actually one of the terms of the contracts prohibited from Woodmont or Hope Bros from recording the contract. Otherwise, it would constitute a default under the contract. TD Bank forecloses. Woodmont, the contract purchaser, actually becomes aware of the foreclosure about six months before final judgment is entered. It doesn't intervene in the foreclosure, does nothing. Rather, during the actual foreclosure action, it enters into a redevelopment agreement with the township of West Ampton to redevelop the property. The foreclosure goes through. TD Bank actually gets its final judgment of foreclosure. It's the successful bidder at the sheriff's sale. It's the actual foreclosure judgment somewhere around $5.9 million. So Westmont gets off its rear and actually tries to do something and sues everyone and anyone. It sues the township of West Hampton. It sues Woodmont. It sues TD Bank. It sues TD Bank's buyers. And that buyer actually sold the property. It sued Woodmont, actually sued that buyer as well. TD Bank and the buyer moved to dismiss. The judge, interestingly, you know, holds the motion to dismiss in abeyance and lets TD Bank and the buyer do discovery against Woodmont, paper discovery, but doesn't let Woodmont get its own discovery responses. Then the judge brings the case up for oral argument again. 
says, okay, now, now I'm going to let you do depositions of Woodmont because the judge wants to determine all the facts relevant to the causes of action that Woodmont pled, which are primarily tortious interference. They sought, you know, damages and they sought a constructive trust over the property. The judge granted the motion to dismiss, dismissed all claims. And on appeal, the appellate division, Judge Fisher actually says, you know, the procedure that the judge took to decide this case, you know, allowing defendants to do written discovery and take depositions of plaintiffs on a motion to dismiss was improper and should never be repeated again. The court rules don't actually provide for this sort of procedure. In fact, Tori, if I could interrupt you for a minute, sure. you're talking about interesting sentences. This, I think this is a sentence no trial judge would ever want to see about an opinion they, they said. Judge Fisher said, the procedure adopted by the trial judge is not recognized by our court rules. Then continue to the contrary. It is well recognized that the plaintiff is not required to prove its factual allegations at the motion to dismiss stage. And then this, then Judge Fisher again follows up and says, with regard to the procedure, other than the additional burdensome litigation the procedure created, the judge found herself back in essentially the same position as when the motion was originally before her. So that yeah. was really quite a smackdown, to put it bluntly. Yeah. And I mean, the, another line in that this procedure was inconsistent with our jurisprudence. It should not be repeated. So it's kind of a caution to litigators and to judges. Motions dismissed, so you've got to take all the favorable inferences in favor of the non-moving party. And the appellate division said, in effect, the judge converted this to summary judgment, which you still have to do the same thing and give all favorable inferences to the non-moving party. But now to the real meat of it, the title aspect of it. Now, there is a case from 2004, actually. It's a Chancery Division case, PNC versus Axelson. That case, another foreclosure action, the lender essentially tried to take clear title to a property from an unrecorded easement. There's actually a New Jersey statutes, NJSA 2A colon 50-30, which you know courts have recognized for a long time now, gives purchasers at sheriff sales title free from any unrecorded interests. So you don't have to name the unrecorded interests and you get title free from those interests when you're a buyer at a sheriff sale. Unfortunately, in PNC versus Axelson, the Chancery judge there effectively cobbled together the old recording statutes, which have been repealed and replaced with new statutes, very similar, but a little different, and said, well, the recording statutes say that unrecorded instruments, unrecorded interests are invalid unless you have notice of them. And in the PNC versus Axelson case, the judge said, well, it's a fact issue for summary judgment as to whether this lender had notice of this unrecorded easement. So we can't effectively leave the lender in a better position than he was before the sheriff sale, where he may have been bound by this unrecorded interest if it had notice, than he would be after the foreclosure sale. Now, that holding, that reasoning would seem to apply equally in this case. Woodmont alleged in its complaint that TD Bank was well aware that it had this contract with Hove Bros that prohibited Hove Bros from mortgaging the property over 80% of the contract value. The final judgment was about $5.9 million to TD Bank when the contract value was $5.8 million. So under the PNC versus Axelson theory, TD Bank could potentially have been bound by this unrecorded contract and perhaps Woodmont would get the property or constructive trust of the property. 
the appellate division actually said not so fast. That holding in PNC Bank is inconsistent with the statute 2A colon 50-30, which effectively guarantees purchasers a share of sales title free of unrecorded interest. And also, there were two older cases from the Courts of Errors and Appeals, one from 1926, Marcy versus Larkin, and one from 1947, Walter versus Introcaso, which relying on the predecessor to 2A50-30 said unrecorded interests get wiped out at sheriff sales, at foreclosures. And it's immaterial whether the purchaser or the lender had notice, whether constructive or actual notice of these unrecorded interests. So the court disapproved of PNC versus Axelson and said, when you have an unrecorded interest, you have to try to intervene in that foreclosure. Otherwise, that lender or the ultimate purchaser at the sheriff's sale, regardless of whether they had notice, is going to take free of your unrecorded interest. And the appellate division actually quoted New Jersey practice series, Myron Weinstein's Law of Mortgages, and effectively said the legislature, when it had adopted 2A50-30, decided to penalize those that didn't record their interests by subjecting them to potential invalidity of those interests in a foreclosure. Now, getting back to the litigation aspect of it, as to the claim for tortious interference against TD Bank, the court said, well, this was a motion to dismiss. You have to take all of Woodmont's allegations as true. Even if the contract was invalid, you can still have a tortious interference or invalidated. You can still have a tortious interference claim. All you really have to establish is that the person interfering acted with malice and intentionally interfering with contractual right. So it affirmed the Burlington County trial judge's decision finding that the unrecorded contract was no longer binding against the property and there can be no constructive trust against the property so that Woodmont no longer had any interest against the property, but it reversed the lower court and allowed the tortious interference claim against TD Bank to proceed, at least at the motion to dismiss stage. So a very interesting case from the perspective of you know, foreclosures and, and title access, because we deal with a lot of time, unrecorded interests, and they can come up in foreclosures. And you have to be wary of that query, whether it's a good idea, if you know of an unrecorded interest, to even name them. Probably not, because now the appellate division is saying it's the holder of the unrecorded interest. It's their burden to come and intervene and establish their interest. Otherwise, they're going to get foreclosed out by statute. We actually had a case a few years ago, unpublished appellate division case that was affirmed that similar sort of situation where there was a planning board resolution that was unrecorded that the other side argued created a title interest to another party. And one of the theories the court held on in finding that there was no title interest, and this also resulted out of foreclosure, was that 2A50-30 foreclosed out any unrecorded interest. So a very interesting case potentially very useful going forward. Or hey, you know, I usually never disagree with you, but I'm going to disagree with you on this podcast. Okay. I think you absolutely should, if you know of an unrecorded interest, that you should absolutely include in the complaint. For the reason in this case, because TD Bank did not get out of the tortious interference claim. And as I understand, looking at the case, the tortious interference claim was that there was a contract that Woodmont had essentially that the debt couldn't exceed 80% of the loan to value. And the allegations was that TD Bank knew about that and allowed the mortgages to exceed more than 
there's some sort of indication, the opinion that might factually might not bear out at the end of the day, but we're just at the pleading stage. So although TD Bank won the battle as to the foreclosure sale, and the sale by that time the foreclosure sale happened, I think the property already been conveyed to a, a third party. Twice. <laughs> um, it was still in the mix with the tortious interference claim. And if it knew, and there's you know, with just allegation stage, but if it knew. I think it would have been wise for to have it included because that would have eliminated all of the issues. And, it's definitely and, more efficient that way. You have two litigations going on now. You have your foreclosure and then you have your tortious interference claim. It's definitely more efficient. You get it all done in one battle. Although the contrary consideration is TD Bank, do they want to get essentially this bad loan off its books and get whatever money it can to get that loan paid off? And then they can deal with the litigation later, perhaps settle it, you know, perhaps do something with it. But you're absolutely right. It's definitely a more efficient procedure to name them because then you get it all out of the way and don't have to worry about a future litigation cropping up. Yeah. So all of our bank clients out there, I would recommend if you know about interest on property and you're going to foreclose, just name those interests and deal with it then and there. But it's a great case, a great discussion, Jorge. And to be clear, I am not a deadhead. I've been to one Grateful <laughs> Dead concert, but trucking was one of the iconic songs in the 1970s. And even people born in, God forbid, in the 90s and the 2000s have heard of trucking. <laughs> I'm just glad that Mike clarified for everyone that he's not a deadhead. <laughs> the record, you know, we're not going to end the podcast without him clarifying that. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you guys for having me on. No, thanks for joining us. I'm a proud title nerd. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess that concludes season one of our Title Nerds podcast. Everyone, thanks again for joining us today and throughout this first season of our podcast. And we hope you'll be with us for next season. Thank you for listening today to Title Nerds presented by Riker Danzig. If you like this show, please remember to subscribe to this podcast on your preferred podcast app and be sure to rate us five stars. You may also wish to subscribe to our blog and visit our website at Riker.com. We hope you will join us again for another episode of Title Nerds. 